Amen. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, tech team. Thank you for those of you online that uh, just persevered with us through whatever was going on there at the beginning. And uh, hopefully we've got things reset in the room. Uh, we just broke, broke the live stream and uh, reset it. And hopefully, you know, there's a spiritual thing in there. Sometimes we just need a reboot and uh, that makes things work better. And so hopefully uh, I'm not lagging and like, you know, doing weird things in your thing. But uh, hopefully things are coming across just great. And uh, hopefully I won't add any more dad jokes to my message today. Um, but I'm excited uh, to be able to share a word with you today that comes from the book of James. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of James. This is the 12th part of the series that we've been in called Trust the Story. And um, <clears throat> I look forward to the day when you're in the room uh, with me when I share these, but I'm trusting that the message is still the same and God uses it in your heart. And um, we have over the last 12 weeks, if this might be the first time you're tuning in, uh, been trying to understand the context of the Bible, specifically the Jewishness of the Bible, the Jewishness of the, the, the context of Scripture. And the book that we've been using is called The Untold Story by Frank Viola. And the untold story basically takes us through the, the New Testament, the history of the church, the book of Acts, and the letters that are written in the New Testament and when they were written. And so this past week, we read uh, pages 86 through 88, um, Acts chapter 15, 1 through 35, and the book of James. And really, over the last three weeks, we've looked at the book of Galatians, we've looked at these chapters from the book of Acts, and we've looked at the book of James. And more than anything else, these three readings, the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15, the book of Galatians, and the book of James, I really think are foundational for us to understand everything that comes next and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that uh, a lot today, and uh, I'm going to refer back to what we've covered over the last two weeks and then launch into what James is telling us here in his book. And so I want to encourage you to use Slack this week as we read pages 93 through 103 in the, the untold story in Acts chapter 15 starting in verse 35, so right after the Jerusalem Council through Acts chapter 17, verse 34, which is all of Acts chapter 17. Um, uh, back in September, I preached a sermon called How to Be Open-Minded, which really focused on these chapters, Acts chapter 17 and the Bereans uh, that Paul was preaching to, and I linked that sermon on Slack for this week's reading. So um, that's obviously one thing I'm not going to share next week in the sermon, and so you could kind of, as you're reading this week, uh, use that link to listen. But uh, you've, you've got to understand there's so much debate that surrounds the timing of some of these things and where everything actually falls into place that you can't say for certainty uh, what, what is true and what is not true. Um, and everything Frank Viola writes in this book, I'm not going to say I agree with. And so some people may say, well, if we can't know for sure, why even bother to study it? Uh, well, because it can still help us put it into context. And in our Western thinking and in our Western world, we are more than able to take something from the Bible and twist it in a way that we need it to mean something in our culture, and we want to be careful we don't do that. And so even though we don't know all the dating and all the authorship and all of these things for certainty, looking back into them and even wrestling with that idea does help put us in the right context so that we can apply it to our lives. And so today, I've titled the message, At the Center of It All. At the center of it all. Um, again, there are CDs and DVDs available. You could come by the church uh, campus this week and pick those up. If you want to pick up the stuff that's in your mailbox, just call ahead, set a time. Uh, we'd be glad to, to have you come in, get the stuff that's here, even just take a moment to interact with you, to pray with you. Um, you know, we'll still social distance. We'll take all of the guidelines into consideration, but you're more than welcome to stop by this week and pick some of that stuff up. Um, copy of the book if you don't have it and the, the resources that I've mentioned and made available. And so uh, all of that is still there. Paul, in what we've been studying, um, wrote his letter to the Galatians. We talked about that two weeks ago. And that letter was specifically written to the Gentiles. And he wrote what he calls his gospel. Paul's words, not mine, his gospel to the Gentiles. And he's telling us that they're free from circumcision. They're free from keeping the law. 
And then last week in Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, it settled this idea that the, the Jews were going to keep the law, they were going to stay circumcised, and they were going to continue to be Jewish in their faith, even though they believed totally in justification by faith. However, the Gentiles were part of Abraham's family, grafted in full rights as children of Abraham without circumcision and keeping the law. And I don't know about you, but when I was raised, I thought that when the Jews became Christians, that they threw away the Jewish faith and they just became Christians. And I believed in what we call replacement theology, that now the church is the new Israel and we've replaced the Jews. But that is not what I find now that scripture teaches. Scripture says we are all children of Abraham. We are all at the same table, full rights as sons and daughters of God, but the Jews are still keeping the law as a covenant not to be justified because they're justified by faith in Jesus, and the Gentiles are called to not follow the Torah, but that doesn't mean we're just free to live however, and that's what Paul presents here in the, his letter to the Galatians, and as we talked about last week, this is happening about 20 years after the day of Pentecost. So it took the church a while to wrestle with this and really come to an understanding of what is true and what is not true. And so um, I hope that helps put it into context and you can go back through and listen to what we've talked about in the past. And so when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he gave this thorough explanation of his salvation experience and the teaching that Jesus gave him and the gospel that he's presented. And uh, he says that the Jews should continue to be Jews. The Gentiles should continue their calling as Gentiles. But we're all justified by faith in Christ and we're all children of Abraham. But that sounded like it meant the Gentiles were free to do whatever they want. But Paul clarified that and said, no, we no longer live according to the flesh. This is important. I, I don't know that I covered this when we went through Galatians, but that word flesh is the word sarks. And we used to translate that sinful nature. We don't live by the sinful nature. That is not actually what Paul's saying. Paul says we don't live by our flesh or what we would refer to as animal instincts. So when you go all the way back to creation, we're created differently than the animals. The animals, when they're hungry, they act on those instincts. When they're, they're thirsty or when they, um, when they want to mate, whenever, whatever impulse, whatever desire, whatever instinct they have, they just act on it. But as human beings created in the image of God, we're not just flesh. We're not just those impulses. We're also soul and we're spirit. And so we can control, even people without Christ have the ability to control impulses. We don't have to act on what our flesh is. It's good that we have the impulse to eat food, but we can control overeating. We can control that by our reasoning, by our mind, because that's how we have been created, different from the animals in the image of God. But then Paul says, not only that, but we have the spirit and if we follow the Spirit, we won't be led by our impulses. He's not saying that it's bad to eat food. He's not saying that it's bad to create things. He's not saying it's bad to be productive. He's not saying it's bad to have sex. He's saying there's a context that you have to keep these things in. Too much food is bad. Sex outside of the order that God has designed is bad. We have to learn to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And then James comes up at the Jerusalem council and says, hey, Gentiles, rather than keeping the law, the covenant God gave with us, we want to send you back to the covenant God made with Noah, with all people, and say, follow this. Follow, don't have idols, but follow God. Watch the sexual immorality and treat life as sacred. And I believe everything comes out of that. Now, today, we're looking at the book of James. James is writing to a Jewish audience. Okay, so I believe this is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the disciples of Jesus. He's the one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that um, Jesus went with him. And he is writing this letter to the Jews that are spread out. If you remember back through our history, the Jews were starting to be persecuted because at this time there are no Gentiles in the faith, just Jews that have come into the church. Some Jews are still just plain Jews. But then some Jews become Christian 
They're being persecuted, so they spread out throughout Palestine and even up into Asia. And so what happens is James is writing to them because he wants to correct some things that they're hearing. Sometimes it's been taught in our society today that James is actually upset with the gospel Paul's preaching, and he's writing to contradict it or writing to clarify it. Um, I don't think that's what's happening, and I think if to, to view it that way does a disservice to what both of these guys are saying, because Paul says we're justified by faith in Christ, but it does matter how we live. James is saying we're justified by faith, it does matter how we live. They're saying the same thing, but they're saying it to two different audiences, to a Gentile audience and to a Jewish audience. And so it could appear to us that they're, they're actually saying two different things, but they're not. It's the audience that they're speaking to. And I really think we have to understand that to understand what's being said. But James is writing to a group of Jewish believers that are suffering and being persecuted. They're being persecuted by their fellow Jews. Because remember, they have faith in Jesus. Jesus is their salvation, but they want to continue to follow the Jewish law as an act of worship to God, as a covenant with God. But the other Jews are saying, no, no, you are not Jewish. You have abandoned what it means to be a Jew. And so they're persecuting them. They're not letting them participate in those ways. And they're making it difficult on them. Not only that, they're suffering at the hands of wealthy people. So these wealthy landowners that are coming in, there's not enough land for everybody that's been spread out. So they're actually taking them to court, bribing judges and actually taking land from some of these other Christian Jews. And so there's all kinds of persecution that's happening to them. And on top of it, these Christian Jews are hearing rumors that Paul is preaching a gospel that does away with the Jewish faith. Okay, so again, I need you to pull out your imagination because this is going to be difficult for us, but I need you to imagine a time when what's being reported isn't accurate, okay? okay you, gotta, you know, like, so the CNN news of Jerusalem isn't really telling the whole story, okay? It's going to be really hard again, but you got to pretend that you know that, the, that this guy goes to Jerusalem, he hears the Jerusalem council, and then he travels all the way up to Asia, and he doesn't accurately portray what's being said. I think we understand this because what happens in our day is, you read something on someone's Facebook, and then you report what that person said, and already we've misinterpreted and misrepresented what was being said. And that's what's happening. These Jews are hearing Paul saying, we're doing away with the Jewish law, and that's not what Paul is saying. And so James is trying to correct that, and he's trying to encourage them, hey... Being a Christian and being a Jew does not mean that they're at odds with each other. These things can coexist, and he's encouraging them, don't throw away your Jewish faith. Continue in it, but it's justification by Christ. And so, James writes this letter. And I, as I've been studying the book of James, this is a brilliant piece of literary work. Some of us might believe that when the scriptures were inspired, the Holy Spirit like sits down next to James and he tells him, write these words. The book? No, I don't think that's how it happened. I think the Holy Spirit comes and inspires James, uses James' personality, uses James' intellect, and he gives James a message, but James crafts it out of who God has made him. Think of it in a Pentecostal circle this way. You know, a gift of tongues happens in a service, and then someone gives an interpretation of that tongue. And someone else is like, you know, I, I had a very similar interpretation, but it wasn't word for word. Ha-ha! Because I don't think the Holy Spirit gives a word for word translation. He gives an interpretation, and sometimes that's subject to the personality of the speaker. Now, we want to be careful not to put our personality so strong in there that we take away from the message God is communicating. But I totally believe God uses our creativity, our design, and he takes James and he crafts this brilliant, brilliant letter. Because James is using a literary device known as a chiasm. 
A chiasm. So what a chiasm does, and this is something that Jewish rabbis would have done. This is something Jesus and some of his teachings did. They would introduce a topic, and it would be topic A. Then they would go into topic B. Then they would go into topic C. And they're building up to main point D, and then coming back around to topic C, topic B, and topic A. And the Jew that's hearing this, would, would he would see it, he would hear it. And if we don't understand it, what we think is happening is, these authors are just, you know, writing, hey, whatever comes into their mind next. It's like the Holy Spirit gave them a different thought. Rabbit trail, squirrel. No, he's crafting an article. And when you study this out and you look at some of the letters, Paul uses this same thing, especially in writing to the Corinthians. This is so, uh, it helps us understand what seems like Paul's scatteredness throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's not. It's a purposely designed method of teaching. And some of you might be like, well, I thought these disciples were unschooled, ordinary men. And when we hear unschooled, ordinary men, here's, I used to think that that meant they were like high school dropouts. You know, like they were, these guys are unschooled, or they are unschooled, ordinary men, so they're like just dumb fishermen. You know, you know, dumb fishermen, Jesus picked them. That's what was in my mind as I was being raised, that that's what that meant. No, 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 no. You got to remember, after the Babylonian exile, all of the Jewish students would study and memorize the Torah, and they would go from level to level, the elite students. That doesn't mean that those who only went to the first level of schooling and then went and learned a trade, it doesn't mean those people are stupid. It just means they weren't trained in the traditional way that other rabbis and teachers were trained. So the fact that they're making these arguments without that formal training is a little weird, I'm going to put it in a modern-day context that I hope helps drive it home without offending anybody, but I want you to think of it this way. Think of someone who went to Harvard and studied journalism, okay? So they get their degree, they get their master's in journalistic study, and they're asked to write a paper on a certain topic, okay? So Harvard graduate, master's, journalism, write a paper on a topic. Then we take someone who was homeschooled, okay? only graduated with a diploma and went through all homeschooling all their life and they're asked to write a paper on the same thing. We read both papers without knowing who wrote which one and we are so wowed and awed by this one paper that we're like, that totally has to be the, the Harvard graduate. And then they tell us, no, that's the guy that was homeschooled and we're like, but he didn't even go to real school. That's what we say in our culture. And Justin Olson, I wish you were here live so I could watch your face when you're hearing this. But that's the, the type of thing we do. We just assume, well, if you were schooled at home, you're not very educated. But you, that, that's a fallacy that we're hearing in our culture. Because there are some people that are educated in schools that aren't very smart. And there are some people that are educated at home that are brilliant thinkers and brilliant people in society we just assume they were not homeschooled because they couldn't be that brilliant and that's kind of what's happening here so they because someone didn't grow up in the traditional sense of education doesn't make them dumb so James is writing this as an unschooled ordinary man but it is a brilliant piece of literary work. It's his chiasm. And he takes 20 parallels from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he inserts them into this writing. This book is brilliant, and we don't even have time to go into it. But this idea of chiasm is so important. And I'm going to give you one option. So get your camera ready, take a picture of that, and you can look at it later. You can open up the book of James and study it yourself. You can Google this and just Google chiasm in James, and you're going to be able to see how James takes us through the beginning, okay, topic A, and then you go down to the bottom, topic A, topic B, topic B, topic C, topic C. And right in the middle of this chiasm, the way this one is worded, we find James chapter 3, it's all about the tongue. And so if James' point is leading up to this idea of be careful about the tongue, and this chiasm is building around this main thought, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change how we interpret some of the things that James is saying. This is a great chiasm, but it's not the one I want us to look at. There are two main ones. This is one of them. Here's the one I want us to look at. And don't worry, if you didn't get a picture, I'll insert them later 
on the thread and you can get it, but take a picture of this one because this one I think is gold. Um, this is the one that we're going to dig into right here in the room right now. James starts by talking about joy in trial. And if you go to the end of the book, James chapter 5, verse 7, patience and suffering. If you go to the second part, James talking about riches and the way of the rich, James chapter 4, letter B down there at the bottom, the ways of the rich. Letter C, lustfulness, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Letter C, James chapter 4, 1 through 12, lustfulness and sin. James 1, 16 through 25, the perfect gift that comes down from God. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, wisdom is the perfect gift that comes from God. James 1, 26, we should restrain the tongue. James chapter 3, 1 through 12, we should restrain the tongue. James 1, 27, religion should be indeed in action. James 2, 14 through 26, faith should be in action. And then we come right here to the center of the chiasm. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and this concept of favoritism. Why is this important? Because I believe whatever James' main point is helps us understand the rest of what he's saying. We love, as Westerners, to proof text. So what we want to do is we want to take any verse in the Bible and we want to put it next to something we want to believe or that we believe to prove we believe it without paying attention to the context that surrounds it. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it's a stretch. And we want to be careful that we're true to the text. We're true to what the Bible actually says. And so take, talking about what's at the center of it all here is very important. So James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, we're going to read it together. And what James puts right in the middle of this is the royal law. And uh, I hope you're half as excited as I am when we get there. So verse 1, my brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. In other words, you should treat everybody the same. You should never treat one group of people differently. Remember, we're called to love our enemies. So favoritism has no place. Then James gives them an example, and this example is what's happening in their lives. That's why he gives it to them. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Oh, I love this. He's like, you're totally judging them by the way you're acting. Oh, no. Who are you to question my motives? My motives... Apparently, he can question your motives by your actions. And so he's like, stop treating these people differently. Then he goes on. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Love that James keeps saying that. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? Oh, where'd he get that from? I don't know. The, Jesus is teaching in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is the teaching of Jesus, and James is reminding them. They're going to hear this, okay? These are Jews. They've studied the Torah. They know the teachings of Jesus. They've been familiar with his teachings. They're going to make these connections, and so James is like, you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Remember, they're taking them into court. They're persecuting them. But when the rich come into their gatherings, these Jews are like, hey, maybe we can get in their favor. Maybe they'll stop persecuting us if we treat them right. And they don't, well, the poor, they really can't do anything for us, so it doesn't matter how we treat them. But the rich, these guys can do stuff for us. So let's, let's try to be, and they may not be saying these things out loud, but this is what they're doing. They're trying to gain from these rich people. So the favoritism is coming out of this selfishness that we're going to hear even later in the book. Are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? And then here it is, center of it all. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Oh, 
This is everywhere, isn't it? Jesus taught it. Paul brought it up to the Galatians. Look, right, let's go there now. Galatians chapter 5. Paul says it right here. Brothers and sisters, you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to just indulge in your flesh, your animal instincts, but serve one another in love because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you're gonna be destroyed by each other. Jesus taught it, Paul taught it to the Gentiles and James right here is saying it again. He says, if you show favoritism, you sin. And you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And we take that verse and we apply it universally. I'm not saying it doesn't apply universally. But we take it to mean if you, you, know, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all the law. But James is actually applying it to how we treat people. And we cannot miss the context of this moment because it's, easier, it's easy for us to do. He says... The law says you shall not commit adultery. It says you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The reason he goes on to to even further illustrate this point is because the favoritism they're showing the rich is part of it. But there's other things at play here. The Jews are having a hard time accepting the Gentiles. The Jews are like, man, we have been covenant keepers with God, and now these newcomers, we're just supposed to just let them come in, and like, they're changing everything. This is everything we hold sacred. Uh, You've got to understand, if you were raised in church, especially an evangelical church, you, in many ways, you, you feel like you're one of these Jews, okay? You're one of these people that, man, I was raised to keep the law. I was raised to keep the Bible. I mean, and now these newcomers are coming in. They haven't proven themselves. They haven't shown, I mean, yeah, they were baptized, but they need to start keeping the law to earn a right at the table with us. I mean, we're not just going to make them... You see how this fits what we're even still facing in the church world today? This, you know exactly how these Jews feel. And what he's saying is, you've got to show mercy. Yeah, these Gentiles aren't getting cleaned up the same way you Jews are. And you're looking down at some of the sins they're committing, but James is about to show you, you're no different. And the laws that someone else might be breaking might be different than yours, but stop showing favoritism. Stop using people for your own gain, for your own advantage, for your selfishness, and treat people with mercy. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. And so he's, he's reminding them, these are the people taking you to court, and you're just trying to get something from it. James is going to talk about orphans and widows. And so today I I wore my Royal Family Kids Camp shirt because I I did it for a reason. Orphans and widows. We serve orphans and widows. It's a part of God's justice. But here's the thing. I can serve them because of the justice of God, because I want to love my neighbor, but I can use them for how it makes me feel too. And this is, this is the subtle danger that those of us in the church world, this is the sin James is coming against. Because, you know, when you serve someone, you're like, oh, man, that just, it makes me feel good to do good for others, especially those who are being mistreated. And sometimes we start serving others because of what it does for us. And then I, I'm dealt, I, my neighbor kids, man, my neighbor kids, well, I, I, you know, I don't get the same Mm, good feeling serving them because, I mean, they're privileged kids. They should act better. They should know better. What are we doing? Ah, it's this subtle form of judging one over the other, but we do it all the time. You know, I'm going to teach Sunday school. I want to teach this youth class, not because I care about the next generation, not because I'm going to give them mercy, but because I want them to look like a mini me. And I get a, I get a, a, a surge of joy when I teach. I'm a teacher, so I need to use my teaching gift. I just need to find people to use so I can use my teaching gift. See how subtle that can be? Anything, worship. I mean, I need to use my gift. I need to use my gift. I need people to use my gift on. 
And James is like, stop using people. The law is, it's about serving others. It's about giving to others. This is what Jesus said. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. If you read my, my, my blog this week, I really highlighted this message. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. And some of you may be like, why are you changing the wording of that? That comes from all the way back when I was in Israel. Uh, I was taught the Jewish understanding of this phrase. We say, love your neighbor as yourself. But the Jewish phrase really for the Jew is, love your neighbor who is like yourself. Meaning, love your neighbor who's just like you. We tend to not view people that way. We tend to see ourselves as better than other people. I mean, we see this person and we know they're human like us, but we act better than them. I mean, we, the reason we don't help this poor person is because that poor person doesn't use their money wisely. And I use my money wisely. And James is saying, that neighbor is just like you. The only reason you use your money wisely is the grace of God. Every good thing comes from God. Don't ever forget that and don't ever treat anyone lesser because this is your neighbor who is like yourself. And we are in trouble in our world because this is what we're doing. It does not take rocket science to watch a video on TV and say, those people that are rioting, those people that are looting, oh, that is terrible. That is egregious. Do not forget that that is someone who is like yourself. And just because their sin doesn't fall into your category doesn't mean you're better than them. It doesn't mean that their sin is any less egregious. It doesn't mean we're condoning their behavior. But you better understand when James says you can't have faith if you don't understand this concept and live it out in your life. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. Don't judge someone else by their, their actions and judge yourself by your motives. Make sure you don't sit in judgment on anyone because mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is a profound message. And the reason James writing to the Jews gives us a different list of stuff than Paul writing to the Gentiles. Remember when Paul wrote to the Gentiles, he's talking about like sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness and the occult and witchcraft. And it's like, and James doesn't list any of those sins. Why? Different audience. Here's the thing. Gentiles are messed up. Okay? And it's okay because I'm a Gentile. But Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't grow up Jewish. They didn't know all these things. So their sins appear like, wow, really bad sins to the Jews. But James comes along and says, hey, your sins of favoritism, your sins of slander, the way you're using your tongue. I mean, if you can't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. The way you're treating the orphan and the widow, the way you're treating the poor, that your religion is worthless because what James is saying is if you claim to have faith but that faith is not incarnated if it's not lived out in your life you're you don't have faith now James isn't saying on day one you got to be perfect you got to get all this right but James is talking to a group of people that's looking at that group over there and saying man that group over there needs to get their act right that group over there needs to behave themselves that group over and James is like have you looked in the mirror those people are just like you. They're Gentiles. What do you expect from Gentiles? They're learning how all of this works. But you Jews, you've had this all along. And the law, by the way, this is something they should have known. Because when they went into captivity, if you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, this subtle danger of favoritism and injustice is huge. When God spoke to the prophets, the overwhelming condemnation that he gives to the people of the world or to the people of Israel in this moment is this concept of treating people incorrectly. We're going to look at Isaiah 58. This is in all the prophets, but in Isaiah 58 specifically, we get to see this. Let me pull up the right passage. Isaiah 58. There it is. Look. Isaiah says, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. 
Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Oh, this is going to be juicy. I mean, Isaiah is about to lay out their sins for them. Day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation who does what is right and have not forsaken the commands of God. Oh, what could they have done? I mean, they seem to do right, but they, they I mean, I almost feel like this could be written, written to America, the conservative evangelical nationalism church in America. You know, you seem to do right. You're saying all the right words, but God's about to point out our sins. What are they? The people say, why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? I mean, we've humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed. I mean, it seems like we're, I mean, God, we really want to get back into our houses of worship and have our Sunday services. We really want to have prayer meetings and fasting meetings. And so we need to open up, you know, we need to like condemn the sins of homosexuality and abortion all across our land. And we need to pray repentance over our land for the riots and the looting and all these things because that's the terrible sin that's on our land, right? Well, let's keep reading Isaiah and see what he points out. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. I mean, I've just mistreated my workers? Well, I mean, but I, I kept the sexual morality laws, God. I mean, I'm, I'm not worshiping false idols. I mean, so, okay, not a big sin. Apparently a big sin. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day? Only in pretense? Only to show up on Sunday morning and live this way the rest of the week? Is it only a, a, a day for us to humble ourselves? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what's acceptable? Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? says the Lord. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer your cry for help and he will say, here am and this is what James is pointing them to. You know, you can look at this other group and you can say that their sins are worse than ours. But James is saying, no, the royal law, what it all hinges on is how we treat others. Because how we treat others proves how we see ourselves before God. The mercy and the compassion that God has poured out on us. So when James, in James chapter 2, begins to talk about faith without deeds... Okay, he, he says in James chapter 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And I love this because James is about to use the same argument Paul used about Abraham, only he's using it to a Jewish audience. And he's not contradicting Paul because he doesn't use circumcision. He doesn't use the works of the law. He goes all the way back to what Abraham did. Look, Abraham was not our father Abraham considered righteous. For what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. As the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, it wasn't circumcision. It wasn't the acts of the law. It was his obedient to be willing to sacrifice his most precious thing, the promise of God itself on the altar. Then he ties in Rahab. Don't forget, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, but he's implying, hey, you Gentiles who are listening in, this message is for you too. Because he says, remember Rahab the prostitute? She was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off 
in the different direction. Do you know that this woman put her life in danger? She put her family in danger to house these spies. She could have been killed. She could have been destroyed. But she put herself on the line for someone else. And she was declared righteous because she loved her neighbor who was like herself. This is what he's pointing to. And it comes all the way back to this. So when James tells us in James chapter 1 that true religion is to bridle your tongue, that true religion is to care for the orphans and widows, in James chapter 2 that true religion is about giving clothes to people and people that don't have food, it's about helping them. And when James comes into James chapter 3 and said the tongue is the biggest problem in our lives, how can we continue to, to praise God with our tongue and then condemn someone else with our same tongue and we live in this society today where we're all about well I'm just loving those people by telling them the truth I'm just you know I'm telling them they're in sin I'm pointing out their flaws I got to give them the truth and that's love okay but don't forget you need to serve them you need to sacrifice for them before during and after your preaching when they spit on you you keep serving them when they reject you you keep serving them. You keep loving them. If all you're doing is standing up on a soapbox and declaring some gospel message, but you're not giving yourself to love your neighbor who is like yourself, you, your religion is worthless. That's what James is saying. It's not that homosexuality is not a sin. It's not that abortion is not a sin. It's not that the things that the rioters and looters are doing are not sin. It's that we have got to make sure we keep a tight rein on our tongue. It's that we're ready to serve and give ourselves on behalf of anyone, no matter how they're acting or how they're behaving, because their behavior doesn't change the love God has for them, and it will never change the way that I act towards them. We love unconditionally and we love even our enemies and James he brings it out go back and read through these these verses in this chiasm go back and look at what James points out don't just listen to the word hear what it says look at it in the context of what we're talking about now go back and read James understanding this royal law that's right here in the center to love your neighbor who's like yourself and see if anything different comes out When James is talking about our lusts, when we hear the word lust, we automatically think sin. But again, that's a a poor poor translation, I think, of that word. Because in James chapter 1, when he says, your evil desires lead you away to be enticed and they give birth to sin, it's not the desires. They're not evil desires. They're desires. Okay, The word evil is added by translators. The word desires are these impulses. The the desire for food is not bad, but there is an evil desire for food. The desire for sex is not bad, but there is an evil desire for it. The desire for creativity and arts is not bad. For work is not bad, but there is an evil desire for it. And if it leads you away and gives birth to sin, then you sin. Read what James is saying in the context of these desires. You, if your desire is actually harming someone else. So what I want and what we do is we're like, well, what I'm doing isn't sin. Well, but how's it affecting your community? Oh, give me just a few minutes to step on your toes just a little bit. And then we'll close up, I promise. But here's the thing. If, if, if what I'm doing, it's not sin, Pastor Tom. okay. How's it affecting your family? How's it affecting your community of faith? How's it affecting our community at large? Oh, see, it's not just whether it's black and white sin in the Bible. It's whether these desires, I have the desire to do this thing, and it doesn't hurt, it's not sin, but it hurts someone else. To me, it has just become sin. To him who knows the right thing to do but does not do it, to him it is sin. That's how James concludes this whole chapter about the fights and the quarrels and the bickering and the fighting that's taking place in the church between Jews and Gentiles. And can I tell you something? There has never been a a division on planet earth as strong as the division between Jew and Gentile. We are so far removed from it, we do not understand the animosity and hatred between these two groups. 
Okay, so the racial issues that we are facing in our culture can be healed by this gospel of reconciliation. Because if this gospel can put Jew and Gentile at the same table, it can put anybody at the same table. And so we have got to preach the message of the gospel of hope and peace and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And we've got to be careful that we do it within the context so that we don't give people the right to live however they want, but we also don't push people away from the table that God intends to be seated with us. And James, I think, does a brilliant job of talking about some of the exact same things, exact same things that Paul is saying to the Galatians, only in a different context. So to our ears, it sounds different. But put it into context, it's the same message. The other thing that we didn't talk about that James talks about so much is suffering and persevering. And I love the beginning of this chapter. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Okay? Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I don't know if you remember when we went all the way back to the Israelites in the desert. God took them into the desert to test them to know what was in their hearts. Like he already intellectually knew what was in their hearts, but remember, no is about experience. So the Jews already understand that testing, wilderness, Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tested, that was all about the experience of knowing what was in their hearts. So they already know this. Testing is good. It produces perseverance. But what they didn't know, apparently, was that they could be joyful about that. They could, they could have a different attitude toward the suffering, Knowing that, joy, knowing that God is at work in it, even when they're kind of failing the test, if that makes sense. And so it's like he's taking the pressure off, okay? This is going to produce perseverance in you. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Some days you're going to do it right. Some days you're going to fail. I'm not writing to you saying, guys, you're out of the church. I'm going to keep calling you brothers and sisters all throughout this letter because I want you to understand it. And so this message, go back and read James today before we dive into our next reading. I mean, we're going to read through Acts and we're going to look ahead to what's coming next. But read James again in this context and let's start serving people. Let's start, I mean, let's keep serving people and loving people. This has been the vision of Restoration Church for the last three years. This message has been something God put in my heart. He's been putting it in your hearts. It's been working itself out. And all of a sudden, we're seeing the world around us, and we're like, man, the message God's given us really seems to resonate with where our culture is right now. Thank you, God, for setting us up for this moment and calling us to step out of our comfortable areas and to be ready for this moment. So I want to read one last scripture, and then we're going to close. Because I want to go back and finish Isaiah 58, because we kind of left it on that bad note, like, you know, ooh, you guys are not doing good things. But I want you to understand, when we catch this as a church, when we catch this type of lifestyle, don't read James and beat yourself up. Don't read James and be like, oh, I'm such a bad person. Read James and repent. Read James and say, God, I don't want to have a tongue that's loose like this. I want good religion. I mean, I want, give me some of that old time religion where my tongue is in check and I'm caring for the orphans and widows and poor and doing things about injustice. I mean, give me some of that old time religion. That's what I want. And so when we pray those things, God hears that. I mean, yes, we want to repent on behalf of the, the innocent blood of the, uh, the babies that have been killed in our nation. And yes, we want to repent upon the sins of our land. But we also want to make sure we're repenting for our own self-righteous sins. And we want to make sure, God, forgive us for not treating our neighbor with love, our neighbor who is like ourselves. And I want to read this promise, and then I'm going to pray. From Isaiah chapter 58, look at this. If you do this, if you, remember what we read, if you give yourself on behalf of the poor, if you do, if you act justly, look at what God promises to do. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, James is all over that, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, 
Then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And so, Father, my prayer for Restoration Church is that you would do that exact same thing. God, that you would make us like this as a church. God, that we would spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry. God, that we would satisfy the needs of those who are oppressed. God, that we would do away with the pointing finger and the malicious talk. God, that our tongues would not just rattle off things unchecked. God, that we would not just compare ourselves with others and think we're better than them. But God, that we would love our neighbor who is like ourselves. God, that we would hear the message of the book of James today and that it would cut deep in our hearts. God, that it would produce repentance in our lives. God, true repentance that leads to everlasting life and fruit. God, so that light is gonna begin to shine out in this city. God, that light is gonna shine out in the darkness of this city, that there's gonna be hope. God, that we as a church are gonna become the repairers of the broken walls of the city of Huron that we're going to be the restorers of the streets with dwellings. God, we are going to be a part of bringing peace and prosperity to the city because we're going to answer the call that you've put in our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, anoint the words of the Apostle James as we read them again today. God, marinate them into our hearts and help them to produce the fruit in our lives that you have forever wanted them to produce. God, thank you for what you're doing in Restoration Church. Thank you for the dreams, the visions, God, the the messages, God, the, the desires that you're birthing in us. Help us not to be afraid to step out. Give us courage. Baptize us today with the Holy Spirit in fire. God, that we would have courage and boldness to step, that we would not be paralyzed by fear or indecision or insecurity. God, that we would not be led by our own preferences or our own desires, but God, that we would look at how the things that we're choosing to do affect our, uh, the people around us. God, the, the, how they affect our community of faith, how they affect our neighbors, how they affect this community of Huron. And God, help us to act in what's in the best interest of others, not just the best interest of ourselves. God, we are grateful for the ability to live in a nation of freedom, a nation of rights, and a nation of privileges. But God, we are kingdom dwellers first, and we lay down every right and every privilege. God, God, no one can take them from us because we're going to lay them down. God, we're going to serve those that, that despise us. We're going to love those that reject us. God, we're going to continue to serve those that spit on us or walk on us. God, we're going to be faithful to the message, the royal law that says, love your neighbor who's like yourself. And God, we know we can't do it without you. We know we can't do it without your spirit. So help us to keep in step with your spirit. Help us not to think about how to satisfy our own desires, but God, help us to think about how to build your kingdom, how to spur one another on to to love and to good deeds. God, help us to take the things that we're reading and studying and to incarnate them in our lives. God, that they would become flesh. God, make us your flesh and blood representatives in the city of Huron and wherever people are watching today, that they would be flesh and blood representatives in their city. So God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your empowering force to put these things into practice. We love you. Thank you that we are forever in your heart. God, help us to walk this message out today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sticking with us today. Uh, God bless you. We're glad you tuned in online and that you didn't let the lag stop you. Now let's do it. Let's go fulfill that royal law and let's just love our neighbor who is like ourselves this week. God bless Restoration Church.